From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Mazi Dar. In any given situation, I'm deeply engaged in what I'm doing, but I'm also lifting my head up periodically and asking myself the question, okay, are we heading in the right direction? Do we have enough resources? Is the market opportunity still there? Do we have the right people in the company working on the right things? And what is the opportunity cost of what I'm doing now relative to other opportunities that I may be intensely interested in? That's Sam Cole. He's an entrepreneur and investor who has seeded over 10 companies across fintech, defense technology, manufacturing, and robotics, including two early-stage companies that he co-founded. Sam was previously COO at Blue Mountain Capital, deputy head of e-exchange at State Street, and currently runs Stonecutter Ventures. Hi, Sam. How are you? Uh, good, Mazi. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Where are you today? So I'm sitting in my office at home in New Jersey right now. Terrific. Well, thank you for joining us. I wanted to start by hearing about how you got your start in finance. So I started out my career actually as a defense analyst and spent about four years doing that, followed by about two years in the former Soviet Union doing defense conversion, very unfinance-like found my way after that back to grad school, where I went to MIT Sloan. And from there, spent nearly six years at McKinsey, focused on financial institutions, with a lot of work in New York City, around the country, and globally. Coming on year six, I had to make a decision whether I wanted to continue to drive toward partnership uh, or do something different. And thankfully, my office mate, a guy by the name of Stephen Sidero, asked me to join a burgeoning hedge fund by the name of Blue Mountain Capital that had been in existence for about six months. He asked me to come over as sort of a jack of all trades back in 2004, in September, actually, I started September 15th, 2004. And I decided with not a lot of description to the job to to take it on. And, and that's where I really sort of formally entered more of an operating role in the finance business outside of consulting, though I had been involved with a number of financial institutions, banks and insurance companies for about five and a half years before. But I would say Blue Mountain was really the formative uh, and starting experience in finance. That's super interesting, Sam, because we've spoken to a number of folks on this podcast. And often the story is that, you know, somebody almost by accident, lands into the finance space and then ends up spending kind of the next <laughs> 20 plus years. Uh, you have an incredibly kind of eclectic background. I'd actually forgotten that history of you as a defense analyst and actually didn't know that you'd worked in the former Soviet Union as well. It's, that must have been quite an experience. Um, but we, you and I met when you were at Blue Mountain, and it sounds actually like we met fairly early on after you had, you had joined there. Tell us a little bit about the work that you were doing around operational uh, risk, because that that ended up becoming incredibly important when it came to the financial crisis and, and leading up to the financial crisis. So 2004, just going back to the beginning of that experience, I was sort of jack of all trades. We had, I don't know, maybe 15 people working at the fund. As you know, Andrew Feldstein and Stephen were the founders. And fast forward to 2005, we had a bit of a crisis at, at Blue Mountain. We were 
very large market participants, as you might recall, in structured credit. And it was in the spring of 2005 with the automotive crisis, not only affecting the large auto companies, but really the OEMs and the suppliers. There was a market crisis. I believe Delphi was filing for bankruptcy. And it had an impact on the structured credit markets that was quite profound and a huge impact on our positions. We suffered a three-day loss, which was quite substantial, and we had a huge amount of pressure coming to bear from both our dealers and our investors. And it was at that point that Andrew asked me to sort of take the lead on forming derivative prime brokerages in concert with Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And the derivative prime brokerages hadn't yet been fully in effect in the market. And this was sort of their their formation. And I worked with the executives at both of the prime brokerages to create structures, both operating and, and, and risk structures, that would allow Blue Mountain to consolidate a number of positions that we had across dealers into essentially two prime brokerages. We were able, as a consequence, to recover an enormous amount of margin and therefore to meet both the margin calls from our dealers and the equity capital calls by our investors. And so we were able to surface from that crisis successfully. We actually created a few additional funds on top of that to exploit the arbitrage and structured credit that emerged from that crisis. But for me personally, it was quite formative. Andrew asked me to become the chief operating officer of Blue Mountain after that. And we had learned an enormous number of lessons from that crisis. And I was charged with implementing those lessons so that our near-death existential experience would never occur again. And so that's what I did across both capital management, asset liability matching, risk management, trade execution, and so forth. And I was also subsequently, as a consequence, made both head of risk management, co-head of risk management, and co-head of trading in addition to my COO responsibilities, because the way Blue Mountain thought about it was in a very integrated, cohesive fashion. And it seems like you had, by this point, definitely caught the startup bug because you then went on to start a, a new company outside the finance space called Fidgetal. Yes. Tell us you know, what gave you the idea to get involved with that and what that company was all about. I got a, a phone call from a graduate school friend of mine by the name of Paul Chang. And Paul had done a number of startups. He was a technologist. He'd been a senior exec at a, at a public company in the ad tech space. And we had gotten into a discussion. We said, you know what, there's a real opportunity uh, to develop uh, a product that uh, large brands and advertising agencies could use to deliver dynamic content to consumers based on their location and to collect the data around that. And so we formed a company called Fidgetal, which is just a fusion of physical and digital. And we developed an entire platform for doing that. And after about three and a half years, came to the conclusion that we needed more scale. And we sold that business to Qualcomm. So Sam, you have had an entrepreneurial mindset for a very long time and have worked on a number of different initiatives. How do you make that decision to continue on with a particular project or, or know that it's time to move to the next thing? I've always had a mindset of... I think one, uh, creating options 
and as many options as possible and keeping as many options alive as possible to constantly evaluating those options, both what I'm doing at a given time and possibilities that may exist beyond what I'm currently working on. And three, just an intellectual curiosity about a lot of different areas. And I think a a capacity to, to dive deep when I get interested in something. And so I think it's sort of the, the intersection of those three elements that in any given situation, I'm deeply engaged in what I'm doing, but I'm also lifting my head up periodically and asking myself the question, okay, are we heading in the right direction? Do we have enough resources? Is the market opportunity still there? Do we have the right people in the company working on the right things? And what is the opportunity cost of what I'm doing now relative to other opportunities that I may be intensely interested in? And so I I think one example of that that I hadn't highlighted is that before even founding Fidgetal, a group of us founded a company called LightSail Education, which was focused on uh, literacy software using tablets. And this was born out of a particular problem we saw in a charter school network uh, based in in New York City. We developed the company, we hired people, we hired a CTO, we started the engineering and so forth. And it was at that point that we had sort of a co-CEO structure where myself and my partner were, were, were driving it. And I came to the conclusion that, you know what, this would be better served, obviously, with a single CEO. He was much better entrenched in the ed reform community than I was and had a broader set of contacts there. And I thought there was an interesting opportunity on sort of the content distribution side of location, which was Fidgetal as a a business. And I decided, you know what, let me leave that, start up Fidgetal. And and that's when I invested about three and a half years then. We came to the conclusion coming into, you know, 2015 – that and you have to be you know you do have to be somewhat dispassionate about it you have to be passionate about what you're doing but also dispassionate and constantly analyzing whether you're moving along the right trajectory or not and, and that that is critically important and so i came to the conclusion with fidgetal along with my partner that we needed to either sell this to someone bigger who can scale it and and really leverage our software with hardware that they may be developing, or we didn't have much of a future out 12 months. And so we came to that conclusion. It was pretty analytic. It was pretty dispassionate. And we sold it and moved on. And I think I apply that readily to every opportunity that I'm involved in, whether it's in an operating role or in an investing role. And you know, it's really, you just need to think about the world more as a portfolio of options where you can allocate scarce time and capital to any one of those options, but there are still other options out there and not doing those options has an opportunity cost and you constantly have to weigh what you're doing at present against the opportunity cost of of not doing other things. And I understand it's, it's a weird perspective to have because, you know, you're sort of, indoctrinated in some ways through maybe culturally indoctrinated in, in the United States that the, the best way to succeed if you're starting your own company is is to sort of invest your your entire mind and heart in that business and do whatever it takes. And there is an element of that. But at some points, you do have to pick your head up and you have to say, okay, is this actually moving in a productive direction? And if not, 
what are the kinds of changes that I need to make either internally or to do something entirely different. Part of that, again, is having the intellectual curiosity that allows you to make decisions outside of what you're doing at present. I don't know if that completely answers it, but that's how I kind of have begun to view the world. It does answer it. And that is really terrific advice. You are full of really terrific advice. And that's a great segue to our, our next topic, which is about OpenFin. You have been one of my best mentors for now over a decade. And you were the person who encouraged me to actually pursue the OpenFin idea in the first place. I don't know how well you remember that uh, pretty fateful, I guess, lunch we had at, at the Harvard Club. Do, do you remember uh, us getting together? I, I do, yes. Yeah. And at that meeting, I was telling you about the the various things I had been looking at. Right. And I don't remember if you were quite holding your head, but I, I you know, remember <laughs> I remember you sort of in physical pain listening to you know the the explanations I was giving you what I'd been through. But I remember distinctly at one point, I think you were you were shaking your head while you were saying this, saying, Well, don't you and Chuck have an idea? of your own that you could pursue together. And that was the beginning of us actually really thinking about starting OpenFin. And you right. later not only invested in the company right at the very beginning, but also served on our board for many years. So tell everybody what inspired you about the OpenFin idea and why you thought to encourage me down that path. So by the way, I would just start by saying that I've learned at least as much from you <laughs> in watching you operate OpenFin. And so it, it's this, this sort of mentorship goes both ways. Going back to your original question, I guess you're asking what struck me in, in sort of delivering that advice to build a company that you, yeah. that you and Chuck should go out and build a company. I, you know, both of you were, especially in the in the space that we were operating, but just given the challenges in the CDS space and and credit, you know, I had the obviously the advantage point to see both of you in action and was spectacularly impressed in, in how you guys contributed to and, and built out CreditX and in particular some of the products that you delivered into the market. And so, you know, the starting point obviously of any company is having uh, a an exceptionally good management team. And that's a management team that is creative, knows how to build and deliver product, understands customers and the market and so forth. And you in particular had that in spades. And so as I was listening, I think, to the to the discussion at the time and the options that, that you were sort of moving through, you know, it just occurred to me that you would not have been happy at a larger company. You wouldn't have been happy. It's sort of in, in your next phase, not being your own boss. And if I recall correctly, OpenFin wasn't your only idea at the time. And you had a number of ideas and that those ideas were firmly and grounded in the reality of, of the market. And so it was actually pretty easy to see kind of where I thought you would be happier, more productive and, and more successful. And obviously, you know, this 10 years is a long journey for, for the company, but what you've built there is absolutely spectacular. And I think it's going to generate enormous value over time for the market, for you and Chuck, for the investors. The best companies sometimes take a, a very long time to, to gestate. And I could see it even at the time that you had the patience to, to see it through. 
which I think is 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 also unusual. And I know you're also someone who doesn't just put his head down and and sort of drive ahead. You're also, I'm sure, evaluating your options constantly. And I'm sure multiple times you've you've thought about alternatives, but you've come to the conclusion that OpenFin was was the right company in the right space in the market, developing the right set of products. And I was confident when we had that discussion that you would be making those kinds of decisions in a very considered and deliberate way, which is one of the hallmarks of a, of a great entrepreneur, but also one of the hallmarks of a great executive, which you were at the time and, and still are. So it was really a no-brainer for me to come in and invest at the start. Well, first of all, thank you for all the super kind things you said. You were a terrific mentor right from the very beginning and gave us a lot of really terrific advice right through and, and, and still do. I don't know how much investing you had been doing at the time into earlier stage companies, but you are now investing full-time, if I'm not mistaken, through a new initiative that you're doing. Can you tell us about your, you know, I don't know if it's your third or fourth or fifth act, but uh, <laughs> now, now as a VC? Yeah. And I don't know if it's actually, I wouldn't exactly call myself a VC and I wouldn't exactly call it private equity either. It's more, almost more holding company type structure. But let me tell you what I've been doing. So I partnered up with two guys that I've, I've known for some time, one of whom happens to be my brother-in-law. And uh, Rob Kunzweiler and, and uh, Scott Zucker. And they had spent most of their career in real estate, and they'd founded a very successful real estate investment firm called Stonecutter Capital. We had thought about you know, doing some deals together. I actually invested in uh, a bunch of their real estate endeavors very successfully. And at some point back in 2011, 2012, we decided to collaborate on an investment in a textile company, of all things, based up in New Hampshire called Foss Industries. And Foss Industries had just come out of bankruptcy. It had a new management team. And we decided, you know, this would be a very interesting opportunity. Now, who invests in textile companies in the United States these days? Well, this textile company was in something called non-woven textiles, it had a interesting technology around destroying viruses and bacteria by embedding copper and silver ions in textiles. So it had some intellectual property. But more importantly, it was engaged in two specific areas of the market that uh, Chinese companies were less focused on. One was auto textiles. So seatbacks, headboards, trunk liners, those types of things. And the other was carpet tiles for homes. And as you might imagine, given the explosion in new home construction, home improvement, and so forth has been doing very well, even during COVID-19. We obviously hadn't anticipated that, but it was that experience back in 2011, 2012 that got us thinking, you know, maybe we should collaborate in a more fulsome way at some point in the future. And so after selling Fidgetal in 2015, we decided to make a few more investments on an ad hoc basis together, bringing in third party investors as well. And eventually in 2019, decided to fully institutionalized, formalized what we had been 
doing into something we called Stonecutter Ventures, which is a unit of Stonecutter Capital. And so I head up Stonecutter Ventures, but we're all equal partners in whatever we invest in. And our philosophy is is not to particularly invest in a stage of development, but rather to look at companies sort of independently, to have macro themes that we're investing in, but importantly, to source our companies through dedicated long-term relationships, whether we know the management team for a long period of time, or we know folks who know the management team for a long period of time. That was critical to our underlying investment philosophy. If you want me to go into the into the types of companies, you'll see that they're generally in less well-known spaces where the venture funds and the private equity firms are perhaps less focused on. And so that was the genesis really of, of Stonecutter Ventures, and I've been working on it for a bunch of years now. Sam, I want to turn the conversation now to a couple other super interesting initiatives that you're working on. You chair the governing board of Success Academy, which is something I just recently came across through a podcast I've been listening to. I had no idea that you were involved with that initiative, but can you tell us about Success Academy and your involvement there? Sure. So Success Academy was actually founded by two members of the uh, financial services community, both asset management uh, executives, uh, John Petrie and Joel Greenblatt. Joel is particularly well-known within the asset management community. And they decided, they're both education reformers, very rational guys who came to the conclusion that the way in which uh, the uh, K-12 through public school system, especially in New York City, was uh, serving its students, was doing a huge disservice to the current and future generation of students, and particularly those who are low income. And they determined that there had to be a better alternative. And so they hatched a, a business plan. They brought in Eva Moskowitz to be the CEO of Success Academy Charter Schools. And she started with uh, one school, I, I think it was K through two, if I remember correctly, maybe K through one. And I became involved with the fifth school. These schools emerged in Harlem to begin with, and they were called Harlem Success Academies. And I became involved in Harlem Success Academy five. I sat on the board. Each of the schools had a governance board. And over the last, I think it's 13, maybe 14 years now, and I've been involved for the last decade, the last 10 years. We've grown the number of schools from the five that where I became involved to 45 schools now, including a, a high school, which we never intended, by the way, to develop. It was originally designed to be a K through eight charter school system, but we've now decided to go K through 12. And you know, we have 45 schools, 20,000 what we call scholars this year. We have well over... 90% who are black and brown students, well over 75% who are free or reduced lunch, which is to say low income. So we're serving students in low income areas of New York City across four of the five boroughs. And I currently chair the governing board of Success Academies, which basically consolidated all the individual boards across all of the schools because it simply became uh, unwieldy as a governance structure having individual boards for each of the schools. And so I've been in doing that for about the last four or five years. 
And I'll tell you, from a performance standpoint, if you took Success Academy's 45 schools and 20,000 students as a district, outperforms every district in New York State, including the wealthiest districts like Scarsdale from a test score perspective. And we are sending each graduating class, we're sending kids to Ivy League schools. Our average SATs are over 1240 now, which is higher, uh, you know, among the highest uh, actually in the country, if you look at the average score. And we're doing all of this in communities and with students who have been low income, disenfranchised, and quite frankly, counted out for many years. And we're solving, I think, a huge problem and, and perhaps the most pressing problem in America these days, which is the unequal delivery of education services to our citizens. That's really amazing. And the stats are phenomenal. This topic could easily be the topic for many podcasts and probably a book or two. But I I also want to talk to you about another important initiative that you're working on, which is our country's national emergency response. Can you tell us about that initiative and, and, and what you're doing and how you're involved? Uh, Sure. So for the last uh, two years, I've been involved with an organization called Business Executives for National Security, which is uh, approximately 400 executives across industries who provide support to the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and other national security institutions in the government, basically trying to uh, transfer and translate lessons from the private sector that could be usable and practical in the national security environment. In response to COVID-19, BENS, as it's called, Business Executives for National Security, formed what's called the Commission on the National Response Enterprise, which is led by former Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, and the chairman and CEO of Johnson & Johnson, Alex Gorsky. And they formed five working groups underneath this commission. I was asked to co-lead one of the working groups uh, titled Infrastructure in Our Economy, and I quickly moved the, the focus from what is extraordinarily broad to something that was more manageable, as it were. And so we decided to focus on our digital infrastructure and how to build and operate a resilient digital infrastructure to support America's economy and its recovery during national crises. And within that, we, we focused on essentially three silos, telecommunications, 5G, and mobility being one of them, resilient computing and the Internet of Things being the second, and then data analytics and artificial intelligence machine learning being the third. And as you know, Mazi, you know, there's a continuing convergence of these silos that's bringing together you know, 5G and post-5G backbones and billions of IoT devices and smart applications to manage infrastructure. In fact, there are you know, various concepts of, of smart cities that are being developed and implemented, which actually see the convergence of these three silos. And this only raises the need for a focus on, on infrastructure resilience. So we, we have been working on that the last two, two and a half months. We released our key findings to the commission and the commission over the next two and a half months is going to be taking all of the inputs from the working groups and formulating a call to action that we that will be presented to whomever is the next president uh, post-November 3rd. At the risk of depressing our audience, what are some of the areas that we really need to do a lot better in? So we had a, a set of seven you know, sort of big recommendations, and I'll, I'll, I'll go through them really quickly. The first is 
we need to aggressively expand our digital infrastructure into underserved communities to bridge the digital divide in this country. And this is something that normally doesn't hit the radar screen, but it's pretty obvious that we can have a resilient economy that's able to bounce back from national crises if we don't have everyone in this country, meaning all the households, with high-speed, low-latency broadband access. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, anywhere from, depending on how you measure it, anywhere from 21 to 157 million Americans cannot actually use the internet today at broadband speeds. All of these numbers, whether it's the 21 or the 157, undermine our national economy and social equity and our nation's strength. And so none of these numbers are acceptable. And so we had a set of recommendations about how to address that. We also recommended that the US government focus on accelerating the deployment of 5G networks, where while we've made reasonably good progress, there's a whole set of issues and we're woefully behind China now. China has made a substantial investment in underlying silicon technology and manufacturing and software controls. Uh, in fact, it's deployed um, some 250,000 base stations compared to about 10,000 in the United States and expects to have some 600,000 radio units and base stations deployed by the end of 2000. 20 with about 180 million 5G phones to be shipped to Chinese consumers by the end of the year. So as we think about our competition, and you've seen this in the media, our competition with China, it's imperative that we start to do, and we have a, a set of sub-recommendations about how to accelerate that. There's lots of good news in, in our report as well. I'm going to have to read the report. Yeah, you'll 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 have to read the report in November, but it's it's not all bad news and obviously this is an anticipation of what we've defined as uh black sky events which are you know prolonged you know crises that impact multiple geographies in the United States at the same time and are and are much more severe than what we're encountering now. The good news is as you've seen the infrastructure on which we're operating today, uh, cloud, telecom, etc is operated pretty damn well. Uh, some some happy news amid a lot of other stuff that hasn't gone nearly as well. I am interested to hear about something you're doing maybe away from all of these initiatives in your personal life, something that you're passionate about during this period when we're all working from home. I have three kids. And so outside of work, outside of these, I guess, non-work related initiatives, I spend most of my time with them. They're 17, 15, and 13. So they're in the midst of you know, sort of, I'm sure all parents are familiar with this. My my oldest son is in the midst of applying to college. He's a, a senior. All my kids are involved in athletics, which actually have been ongoing through the summer. We love to do more outdoorsy type things, which, which we've been trying to do in the summer. And that's how I spend my time. At the end of the day, you, you have so little opportunity as you're pursuing your profession and as you're pursuing other I would say nonprofit passions that having the ability to spend time with my family is something I avail myself of with whenever I can. Well, that is a fantastic note to end on. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really terrific to catch up with you. Thank you, Mazi. It's been great catching up with you. I'd like to thank Sam for joining us and you for listening. John Syracusa is our show's producer. You can also hear John interview fintech founders and the VCs who fund them on the Bank On It podcast. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast. Mm-hmm.